I'm Saran Siegel, and this is Peace at the Water Cooler. I'm really thrilled today to have as my guest, Brian Hartzer, former CEO of Westpac, on my show today. We discuss his book, The Leadership Style, and how leaders can go about building engagement with their staff. Okay, so Brian, welcome to Peace at the Water Cooler. Very excited to have you on my show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So, Brian, you know, you have a really ex- ex- um, an extremely impressive resume as a leader of a number of financial services. You are the former CEO of Westpac, and you've written a book on leadership called The Leadership Star, A Practical Guide to Building Engagement. I have to say that as an avid reader, your book really stands out to me, um, and I think it's because in my work as a conflict resolution consultant, not only is it extremely, you know, it's an, a really practical guide, but you know, I often come across many leaders who, when it comes to the human element, tend to pass the buck, you know, whether it's to HR or to a manager or tend to ignore the issue completely just to focus simply on the financial aspects of the organization. So what struck me is that you say in your book that you made it your quest for over, you know, two decades of your professional life to answer the question of what you have to do personally as a leader to improve engagement. So what I the first question I have to ask you is why is this concept of engagement so important? Well, thank you. And thank you for picking up on that. Um, it, it was really a driver for me. I felt that clearly while there's lots of other things that go on in leadership, the if you want to build an engaged workforce, clearly the leader has to think about their own behavior, their own focus, what they do. So um, I'm, I'm glad you, you noticed that. I, I think this is, in this environment, people have been under a lot of stress, right? I mean, it's been a, it's been a really tough few years on on lots of levels covid the most obvious one but there've been many other things going on and and the environment now we've come out of covid into a a more challenging economic environment interest rates going up um supply talk chain issues talk yeah. of recession yeah. Yeah. Uh, challenges to home prices and um uh, geo uh, geographic challenges with China and the Ukraine and Russia and all these things. So all these things add to stress. And I think that it's important that leaders think about how they create an environment where their people can feel focused and happy and do their best work. And um, uh, there's plenty of evidence that when people do have highly engaged workforces, that they get better results financially for customers, uh, for, for those people. And you know, even if you don't buy the logic in detail about the role of engagement strictly in driving financial performance, I think the logic is pretty sound. One thing that most leaders talk about, and pretty much every business I'm associated with, talks about the difficulty of finding good staff. And uh, they talk about the great resignation, uh, yeah. which, right? And, yeah. and, and I think in an environment like Australia, where talent is limited in, in the first instance, because it's a smaller country, if you can attract the best people and create an environment where they are going to thrive, that gives you a tremendous advantage in any business. So I think that just selfishly, regardless of whether you think there's some huge, deep connection, uh, I think if you can solve the issue of getting good people to want to work for you, stay there, do their best work, that's got to be an advantage. And and so uh, I just think engagement and the focus on engagement gives you an ability to understand why people are leaving. Uh, I mean, I personally think that the great resignation is predominantly evidence of a failure of leadership, a failure to give people a sense of purpose and and to feel valued and to feel like they're contributing and growing. 
I mean, would you say that the balance of power has generally shifted now to the employee? So, I mean, do do organizations actually have a choice that they have to focus on their culture, surely, and, you know, employee engagement? Well, they do. I, I think different companies are in different states, uh, different phases. There, there clearly are organizations that can rely on constant turnover, bringing new people in to do task-oriented work and casual labor and, and the rest of it. And so I think we have to acknowledge that there are some big businesses that can run that way. But certainly a business that's depend, dependent on knowledge work, um, dependent on delivering good customer service that engages customers emotionally, it's pretty hard to see how you can build and sustain a business like that if you don't have your own people in the first instance feeling connected and motivated to be there. And just on that point, the great resignation, it's now, I think, being termed the great reluctance or something about people <laughs> not wanting to go back to the office. How, how do you deal with that with that issue? Well, I, I have a, um, again, I think it depends on the nature of the company. Um, and I so I don't think there's a single answer for everyone. I do think that the COVID experience has comprehensively proven that most jobs or most work can, in fact, be done remotely, or, or certainly many, many professional services or knowledge work type jobs can be done that way. And many people have found great advantages in terms of flexibility and their ability to engage with their families and their ability to manage their time uh, productively. Um, some of it, I suspect, is a reaction to too much open plan working where they were tr having trouble concentrating. So there's a lot of pluses, which mean that I don't think that having had that experience, people want to completely give it up. That said, we've also been in, for many businesses, survival mode for the last couple of years, which is not necessarily the state we're going to be in in the years ahead, where the ability to be creative, to innovate, is dependent on strong cultures, people connecting with each other, working together collaboratively, and very importantly, developing the capability of new employees. So it's one thing when you're in a static business and everyone knows what they're doing to be able to go away and do their tasks remotely. But when you're working in a more creative environment where you need people interacting with each other, you need to have strong personal relationships, I, I don't see how you can get away from the fact that for the long-term sustainable health of an organization, there needs to be a strong element of, of in-person Face-to-face -face interaction. Yeah. So, yeah. so what mm -hmm. do you do about that? And I think we all know deep down there's a myth, there's a mix of people who genuinely don't believe that it's going to be to their advantage to be in a physical working environment. There are going to be people who just actually like the fact that they can wake up when they want to wake up and sit around in their tracky decks all day. Um, and so in some cases, I think leaders probably have to be more forceful. At one end of the spectrum, we've seen Elon Musk's recent um, Absolutely, uh, statement. Yeah. And uh, what did the, you think about that? Well, uh, I mean, the guy's the richest man in the world. I don't think I'm in a position to miss to, to <laughs> he's built several big businesses. Um, I'm not sure I'm the person to second guess him. Um, but I think it, uh, my core thing is I think it's situational and, and what's right for one business um, may not be right for any, every business and, and also choices have consequences. So, so the consequence of a decision like that, is that there will be some people who won't want to work there. Um, now, and, and I'm sure he's thought about that, and perhaps he's happy with with that consequence in terms of trying to select the people that 
that do want to work there and do want to work in that environment. Um, and that's why I don't think you can simplify this to one answer for every business. But if I had to boil it all down, certainly in the businesses I'm associated with, we see more demands on people to be spending a certain number of days at, in, in the working environment and to try to coordinate those days so that people are there together and able to build relationships and support the development of new people um, who aren't going to be very easily mentored over Zoom. Um, and I, I think we probably will see many organizations become more directive and forceful about that. And to be honest, I also think that as people start to get back into the routine of doing that, they'll actually enjoy it. I mean, we are we are social animals. There is a lot of fun to be around other people. And I know certainly I uh, go into the office most days. And a big part of that is I just enjoy being around people. Absolutely. I think people have got used to being isolated and maybe there's a fear or, or something of, you know, getting back into that. But ultimately, it's probably good for everyone's well-being. It Just is. I think there's everyone needs a bit of that. And it, it isn't. I, I certainly felt that way. It was a bit strange the first time I got on a train or the first time I got on an airplane and was surrounded by a crowd. It felt very strange and it was hard to get used to that again. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. but but the benefits for mental health of, of having social interaction, I think, are very important. Okay. So let's get back to your book. Um, you developed a five-point framework to build and sustain highly engaged teams, hence the leadership star. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and what it means? Sure. So this grew out of me as an untrained leader. I don't have an MBA. Uh, I found myself managing a business of about a thousand people and had to figure out how to do this. And so I started paying attention to what other leaders were doing, picking up good ideas, trying things, found things that worked. And uh, eventually the business was starting to be very successful and having very high engagement. One of my colleagues from another part of the business asked me if I would come and talk to his team about what we were doing. And that forced me to sit down and make a list of the things we were doing and, and to try to organize them in a way I could communicate them so they would be memorable. And, and that ended up with these, how these five things came about. And I found that I could make them all start with the letter C, which made it easier <laughs> to remember. Um, and, Very uh, useful, and to yeah. try to, uh, I don't know about you, but often I read books and I forget them as soon as I've read them. And so I wanted to make it something really memorable. And I had the visual notion, okay, there's five C's, there's five points on a star. I'll call this a leadership star. So the idea is you say leadership star, you remember five points, then you remember five C's, and hopefully you can then unspool it in your mind. And and I did that as much for me as in going around in my management career to try to remind myself of the things I needed to do. So the five Very C's, yeah. um, they are in order, care, context, clarity, clearing the way, and celebrate. And um, if I run through them very, very quickly, care is about caring for individual human beings and making them feel important and making sure that you are genuinely taking action that helps them be successful on their own terms. Context is about the why, the sense of purpose of the organization, and how what each person does all day contributes to that broader sense of purpose so they can see that connection of, of why they do what they do. Clarity is about making sure people understand what their job is, which sounds simple, but often is not well communicated, and what what outcomes are expected. So what does good look like and what does great look like for that individual in their role? And clarity about behavior. So the values of the organization, what behavior is okay, what behavior isn't okay. 
Clearing the Way is about leaders taking an active interest in the barriers to people's success and taking steps to knock those barriers over, whether those barriers are restrictions in terms of resources, or they might be people don't have the right training, the right knowledge. Perhaps there are relationship issues in the team. Perhaps there are emotional hangups that the person needs to address. Uh, But it's about digging in, being willing to get into the detail and understand what's holding people back and then taking action on that. You actually, sorry to interrupt, but you, uh, I remember with Care the Way, you spoke about a meeting that you you had delivered a, a presentation or something and you and then you expected your audience or your, your staff to start asking questions. And the, the one person who was brave enough to ask a question said, we need a new photocopier machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, I was no, a young, I was a young executive and I yeah. had given this, what I thought was this brilliant presentation on our strategy. <laughs> and I asked yeah. for questions and there was silence. And then uh, that was the question is, can we have a new copy machine? But then it all started and then people started coming out. Yeah, I said, well, you, why do you need a cop- new copy machine? He said, well, we have to make copies of each document when we do a transaction for customers and the copy machine breaks down all the time. So we spent a lot of time standing in a queue and I said, well, okay, let's get a new copy machine. And everyone suddenly got very excited <laughs> because, <laughs> because we were finally doing the thing that was going to help them be successful. And it's, I use that story just to help to your point, make sure that people understand that often the barriers are very simple. But if you don't take the time to ask, um, you may not know. And particularly in big organizations, uh, people come in and they just start to accept that things must be the way they are. And so they they deal with difficult situations and they don't put their hand up. So you have to be you have to be curious. You have to be willing to get into the detail, not over-delegate so much that you don't actually know what's going on. And then the final C is celebrate, which is really about recognition. Um, and it's about creating a positive spiral between people's achievement and then the sense of satisfaction that they get at an emotional level for what they've done. And the subtlety on this is it's more than the formal processes of pay, rises, promotions, and so on. It's really about creating a culture of appreciation where people are frequently getting recognition for what they're doing and it's causing them to want to do more. And it's, it's connecting with them at an emotional level for what they've achieved, not just a, a, a um, what would be the right word, just a, a sort of systematic methodolo- methodological thing. It's about being creative and formal and informal and frequent as well as periodic and so forth. Yeah. So, I mean, this point of care really resonated with me because when I, I do go into, you know, organizations to conduct mediations or investigations, I, I often see, you know, from the top that this aspect is lacking. Um, and also you speak about, which I, which I, I thought was wonderful, your father instilling the importance um, of showing respect to everyone who you come across in life, no matter their station. Um, and one of my pet hates is to see, you know, people talk down to whoever, you know, to people they regard as beneath them or as waiters, cleaners, junior staff. I mean, how important do you think this is to, uh, you know, for a person to there, show? There's a, there's a great story. It may be apocryphal, but I'm told that um, Bill Clinton picked up on something that was apparently a, a feature of one of the African languages where the version of hello was I see you, and and that um, the idea and that Bill Clinton apparently picked up on this, and that whenever he met someone, he would silently say to himself, "I see you," and it was this notion of recognizing the individual humanity of everybody that you come in contact with, 
and that that deep down there are lots of things that make us all the same um you know in terms of how we want to um do well in life we want we love our children we we want to have strong families we want to feel safe um and and i think that just that recognition that people are not a human resource to be allocated they're people and and if you if you treat people as the um fantastic individual human beings that they are um that tends to get reflected back in the way they treat other people ideally um and it it creates a creates a stronger culture um but i mean to your point I mean, for me it was drummed into me from um the first my father grew up in a in a working class family he was the first one to go to university in his in his family and um he did well and i was lucky i grew up in a very affluent nice place but he always made it very clear that it's just as important that you are nice to the people who are cleaning the building as it is to the the principal that's running the school and um and uh so that's obviously that's you know that's with you that principle yeah. that's how you know part of your but you know I, I think the thing i would say about that so yes it, it, to me it's a basic moral ethical thing but also it brings me joy you know some of the most interesting people i've ever met are not ceos of global corporations um absolutely it's your uber driver or your I mean, yeah you know yeah. Do, do you know who my i mean i made loads of friends at westpac but if i had to say to you uh, among my three best friends from Westpac, one of them is the guy that runs the cafe down, Michael, who runs the cafe downstairs at head office. I mean, we're friends. You know, he texts me, I text him, I pop in and have a coffee there and we have a chat and, you know, and I met him because I used to go in every morning and get my coffee and we would chat and he always would tell me things about, he knew more about what was going on in the building than I did. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we're still friends, you know, several years well, later, I still go in there and see him and, I think that's amazing. It's a testament to and, and yeah. all his and and you know the interesting thing about Michael mm-hmm. is through COVID running a cafe in a building that was mostly empty, he kept all his employees and they're still there. Wow. And you know, and why? Because he treats his people that way. He looks after them, he wanted to help them get through it, and they're loyal to him and they're loyal to the people that are there despite the fact they've had a horrible couple of years. Um, I don't know. I just think, you know, life is richer when you care about people. Oh, absolutely. Take the time to understand them. That's why it's hard to, you know, believe that there are a lot of people out there who who don't have that philosophy. But anyway, that's another matter. Um, okay, so you believe care is the foundation of high engagement. And you, you say that, you know, leaders need to acknowledge their humanity and they need to demonstrate empathy and compassion. What about, you know, some people you come across are really good at their jobs technically, but they don't have the people skills. They don't have that empathy or compassion. Do you think people can develop this? Well, I think I'm living proof of that. Um, uh. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I was a product of typical ambitious Ivy League management consulting, individual insecure overachiever. Um, and I, I stumbled into the fact that I, through experience, that I got more satisfaction out of seeing other people do well than myself do well. So, um, you know, I do think you can learn it. Um, but th- there's another implication of your question, which is, should you tolerate it if people fail to to learn it? Um, and on balance, my answer is no. Um, you know, that I think you should help people understand that as a, certainly if they're in a leadership role, 
their job should be to make one and one equal three, uh, you know, not turn, not turn three into two or one. Um, and I think it is the job of the leader to intervene when, when people are not um, fulfilling that aspect of their responsibilities. And that's often very common that uh, you find that because people are so tech, you know, so good at their jobs or maybe they're the highest performer or, you know, whatever it may be, people are reluctant to get rid of them if, if you know, if they don't have those people skills as well. Well, it, it's a question of what job you put them in. There are certainly specialist skills. There are some people who aren't suited to managing people don't like doing it. But if they have a specialty skill and you can create a role for them to do that, I think that's fine. It's when it's when you are relying relying on their ability to build and motivate a large team, and they they clearly aren't interested in doing that, or or they're or for whatever reason they're actually a negative to culture and engagement. Then I think you have to you have to act. And 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 the obvious thing if they're if they're lacking in integrity or they are treating people disrespectfully, I mean that's bullying or whatever it might be. I mean that's poison that has to be dealt with. So how how do you balance being both uh, the cheerleader and the coach to use an analogy that you use? So obviously you need to give constructive feedback when when you know when performance is not what it should be or whatever it may be. But how do you balance that? Those two things. Uh, the way that I've tried to deal with it, and I'm not saying this is the answer, is that I've tried to make sure that by starting with care, if I use my, my framework, that I want the people that work for me to know that my highest priority is to see them be successful. And I need to see the organization be successful as well. And I genuinely have their interests at heart. And I think that if people believe that you genuinely have their interests at heart, they're more willing to listen when you need to give them difficult feedback because they they they're not second guessing where it's coming from, um, so that would be my my answer. And I would try not always successfully, but I would try to tip the balance to being more cheerleading than um, you know than coach. I, you know, I think y- you can almost never recognize people enough, provided it's genuine um, and not just superficial. Um, but I and and I also think. Over the years, I've probably gotten a bit better at recognizing different people react differently to different things. So there's some people that need a lot of um, a lot of stroking. Um, uh, one of my colleagues used to refer to people as confidence players. That as long as they were feeling confident and secure, then then they would they could do whatever. And then there's other people who are much more internally confident, or sometimes you just need to hit them between the eyes with something, or else they'll just not get it. Um, and I, I think you develop an ability to recognize that you need to adapt your approach with different individuals depending on who they are and how they are. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, in the afterword of your book, you you talk about the the circumstances in which you left Westpac. Um, are there any lessons you can share with our listeners in regards to this experience? Yeah. Um, uh, there's several. I mean, first is don't be a bank CEO. <laughs> <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't like criticism, um, yeah. But uh, um, I, I think I'd, I'd boil it down into two categories. So, at a personal level, I think what was very important for me was a habit I got into probably twenty years ago of 
separating how I felt about myself from how I felt about my career success. So recognizing that despite your best efforts, there's a level of randomness in business and um, you can do your best, but sometimes things happen that you can't control and you can't let those sort of circumstances undermine your own sense of self. That doesn't mean you, you don't learn from mistakes and learn from adversity. Of course, you need to do that. But if if there are things that are outside of your control, then you shouldn't internalize those as being failings or yeah. So it's so mm. I I tried to have a strong view of how do I judge myself, which is about am I proud of the way I've conducted myself? The have I made decisions on the right way? Have I have I treated people well? Um, have I worked hard? Have I done? Have I use my talents to the best of my ability. And, and if I've done that th and, and maintain relationships with my family and all the things that are important to me, if I've done those things, then I'm fundamentally okay with myself. And then I obviously want things in my career to go well. Um, but if I've, if I've given it my best and I'm confident with the way I've behaved and made decisions, well, then I, I accept that it will be what it'll be. So my internal mantra is all I can do is all I can do and it will be what it will be. And, and, and I, 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 I judge myself on that. So that was really important because when you have the whole world screaming at you through the newspapers, telling you how terrible you are. You need to have a, an inner That can sense. be a real knock to... Yeah, I mean, it's it's not fun, I, I can assure you. Um, uh, but if you have an internal sense of self that's grounded in something else... Um, and by the way, the secret to that is making sure that you don't get carried away with yourself when things do go well. It's not so much about... It's not so much about when things go bad. It's actually how you react when things go well. Is that so you what don't, do you mean? Exactly. So, well, an example would be, say once a month, the CFO would come in to my office and, and say, I've got the results for the month. And one month he might walk in and say, we had a great month. Now you could, and when, when he would do that, I would say, well, that's terrific. What happened? Is there anything we need to do to keep it going? You know, that's, that's good to hear, you know, terrific. And then the next month he might walk in and said, oh, we had a terrible month. And I would say, okay, well, that's too bad. What happened? Well, you know, why and what do we need to learn from it? Is there anything we need to do? In other words, I would try and react the same way <laughs> yeah. um, rather than start to think, oh, look what a genius I am. We had a good month. And then the next month think, oh my gosh, you know, look how hopeless I am because we had a bad month. You know, the reality is that neither of those things is true, right? So, um, so that's I think that's, that, that's at a personal level, that, that would be my main thing. And then, and then professionally, I think um, there would be a couple things for for that experience one was that in big organizations people can become focused on process rather than outcomes because they're being asked to do so many things there's so many requirements from regulators there's so many you know they have so many key performance indicators that are being tracked on there's so many rules that they have to follow that sometimes people get ground down and they start just going through the motions and not actually looking at the content of what it, what's in front of them and saying, wait a minute, does this make sense? What's, what's the outcome of this process? And, and does, does it make sense? And if not, what am I doing about it? Uh, and I think there's been quite a lot of that in, in large companies. Um, so that'd be one. And, and the other, the other would be make role clarity, making sure everybody's really clear who's responsible for doing what sounds really obvious, but in big organizations, big complex processes, 
you can get into a situation where one part of the organization thinks it's somebody else's job to do something and vice versa and, and things fall through the cracks. So being explicit about that, I think is quite important. Okay. That's that. I mean, yeah, it sounds like you, you know, I mean, you, you have these strong beliefs and philosophies, which get you through difficult times, I guess. Which is so, far. <laughs> so far. So far. So, so Brian, in conclusion, just any advice or strategies for leaders who, you know, are facing maybe, um, you know, toxic workplaces or, you know, a lot of, as you, you, you mentioned earlier, I mean, it's a difficult time. It's sort of a state, you know, we're in a sort of transition phase. Um, any advice for just, you know, calmness and, collaboration and whatever else? So uh, I guess what I would say is one thing that has helped me is the recognition in difficult situations in conflict that everybody is insecure is my, is my, uh, my kind of half, half joking, but not really observation. And that if you, if you start with the assumption that people are insecure it tends to explain a lot of behavior um, in the workplace. And so, uh, and I suspect in negotiation as well, is that people are offering, often coming at something actually from the standpoint of what they're afraid of losing or how they're afraid of being embarrassed or, or, or being accused of doing something wrong or whatever it might be. And so if you can take the time to build an understanding of, what's driving individuals and what they're afraid of and what they're insecure about, and then address that, then often a lot of the other issues go away. Um, because often the uh, people talk about office politics as if it's everyone running around trying to stab everyone else in the back. In my experience, that's very rare that generally people are more running around being afraid someone's trying to stab them in the back <laughs> and they're, and they're, and they're yeah. acting in ways to try to protect themselves. And so if you, if you can help understand what people are afraid of and, and, and help them either fix that issue, resolve it or put them at ease, then often they become more generous, optimistic, expansive, collaborative. Um, so it's really about communication at the end of the day. Yeah, communication and understanding mm. um, and empathy you know, yeah. and yeah. self-awareness and understanding how what you do is interpreted as opposed to intended. Um, there's a great line someone said to me that, that we, we judge ourselves based on our intentions and we judge others based on their actions. Um, and, and I think trying to under taking the time to, recognize we don't often know why people do things but if we can take the time to try to understand that then often things make sense and, and we can manage through it absolutely well i think that's a good place to to um say thank you for your time really really informative and um yeah i i i, rec I highly as i said highly recommend your book the leadership star and um Thank you. It's available in all good places. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, there's a lot of practical stuff that I've tried to put in it, as hopefully you've seen suggestions for people as someone who's struggled through this myself. And um, this is the book I wish I'd had 20 years ago when I was first starting to lead Absolutely. people. People are really going to get a lot of great use out of it. So thanks, Brian, and all the best. Much appreciated. Take care. <laughs>